Hello and welcome to the Idiot Book Nook. My name is Blazewing, my pronouns are she, her, and they, them. I am the Reading Dragon, and my pronouns are she, her. My name's Lady Punnett, my pronouns are primarily she, her, sometimes they, them. It is a she, her type of day. Excellent. This is episode 36 of the Amulet of Samarkand here on the Idiot Book Nook. The first book in the Bartimaeus trilogy, written by Jonathan Stroud, and if we remember correctly, written in 2003. Uh, or at least printed. We are on episode, or sorry, we are on chapter 20 today. Uh, if you would like to follow us on our social media, you can do so at lanktr.ee slash idiotbooknook. We have links to our podcast, we have links to our socials, we have links to our website. Feel free to go check out all of our links and let us know what you think, now that they're all in one convenient place. Several episodes after I said they would be, naturally. I mean, this is our first year doing this shit, so. You're not wrong, we're still getting set up, but also executive dis dysfunction's a bitch. Yeah. So. With that being said, we hope you have been enjoying the series thus far. Does anybody have any housekeeping before we get officially get started with the podcast? My Eventually. cat is playing with something made of glass in my bedroom, but I can't bother to go look at what he's doing. Okay. Hopefully the glass is not broken glass. It sounds like he's rolling it on the ground. Okay eventually i am going to get around to swapping areas of where mine and my boyfriend's desks are so at some point for the twitch viewers you might see a different backdrop uh for i will have moved my desk in back into what's supposed to be my recording and crafting room not just the twitch viewers but the ones on youtube as well so for yeah. those of you that don't know, we actually upload our video clips to the Crimson Entertainment YouTube, which I think it's on the link tree. If not, you'll be able to f hopefully find it soon. But episode 20, we are still working on Nathaniel. Uh, at least yeah. we were last time we left off. We yes. are inside the parliament and narrator, if you would please take it away. <coughs> The Bartimaeus Trilogy, Book One, The Amulet of Samarkand, written by Jonathan Stroud, narrated by The Reading Dragon, voice acted by The Reading Dragon, Blazewing 2010, and Lady Punnett. Chapter 20 The shattering of an elemental sphere in an enclosed space is always a frightening and destructive act. The smaller the space, or the bigger the sphere, the worse the consequences are. It was fortunate for Nathaniel and for the majority of the magicians with him that Westminster Hall was extremely large and the tossed sphere relatively small. Even so, the effects were noteworthy. As the glass broke, the trapped elementals, which had been compressed within it for many years, loathing each other's essences and limited conversation, recoiled from each other with savage force. Air, earth, fire, and water. All four kinds exploded from their minute prison at top speed, 
unleashing chaos in all directions. Many people standing nearby were at one and the same time blown backward, pelted with rocks, lacerated with fire, and deluged, deluged. and deluged with horizontal columns of water. Almost all the company of magicians fell to the ground, scattered like skittles around the epicenter of the explosion. Standing at the edge of the crowd, Nathaniel was shielded from the brunt of the blast, but even so, found himself propelled into the air and sent careering back against the door that led onto the river's onto the river's terrace. The major magicians escaped largely unscathed. They had safety mechanisms in place. They had safety mechanisms in place. Mainly captive jinn charged to materialize the instant any aggressive magic drew near their master's persons. Protective shields absorbed or deflected the ballooning gobbets of fire, earth, and water, and sent the gusts of wind screeching off toward the crap, screeching off toward the rafters. A few of the lesser magicians and their guests were not so fortunate. Some were sent ricocheting between existing defensive barriers, bludgeoned into unconsciousness by the competing elements. Others were swept along the flagstones by small tidal waves of streaming, of steaming water and deposited in sodden humps halfway across the hall. The Prime Minister was already gone. Even as the sphere crashed into the stones three meters from the stage, a dark green afrit had stepped from the air and swathed him in a, hemer in a hermetic mantle, which it promptly carried into the air and out through a skylight in the roof. Half dazed by his impact with the door, Nathaniel was struggling to rise when he saw two of the men in gray jackets running toward him at frightening speed. He fell back. They leaped over him, out of the door and onto the terrace. As the second one passed above with a prodigious, with a prodigious bound, he let out a peculiarly guttural snarl that raised the hairs on Nathaniel's neck. He heard scuffling on the river's terrace, a scrabbling noise like claws on stone, two distant splashes. He raised his head cautiously. The terrace was empty. In the hall, the pent-up energy of the released elementals had run its course. Water sluiced along track. Water sluiced along cracks between the flagstones. Clods of earth and mud were spattered across the walls and the faces of the guests. A few flames still licked at the edges of the purple drape upon the stage. Many of the magicians were stirring now levering themselves to their feet, or helping others to rise. A few remained sprawled upon the floor. Servants were running down the staircase and in from adjoining rooms. Slowly, people began to find their voices. There was shouting, weeping, a few belated and rather redundant screams. Nathaniel got to his feet. Ignoring the sharp pain in his shoulder where he had collided with the wall, and set off an anxious and set off an anxious search of Mrs. Underwood. His boots slipped in the mess on the floor. The fat man in the white suit 
was leaning on his crutches, talking to Simon Lovelace and the old wrinkled magician. None of them seemed to have suffered much in the attack, although Lovelace's forehead was bruised and his glasses slightly cracked. As Nathaniel passed them, they turned together and evidently muttered a joint spell of summoning. For six tall, slender jinn, wearing silver cloaks, suddenly materialized in front of them. Orders were given. The demons rose into the air and floated at speed onto the terrace and away. Mrs. Underwood sat on her backside with a bewildered look on her face. Nathaniel, cru Nathaniel crouched at her side. Her chin was caked in mud, and the hair around one ear was slightly singed. Otherwise, she seemed unharmed. Nathaniel felt a little teary with relief. Yes, yes, I think so, John. You don't need to hug me so. I am glad you are not hurt. Where is Arthur? Nathaniel scanned the bedraggled crowd. His master had evidently not had time to mount an effective defense. If his beard, which now resembled the split halves of a lightning-struck tree, was anything to go by. His smart shirt and jacket front had been blown away, leaving only a blackened vest and a slightly smoking tie. His, trouser, his trousers had not escaped either. They now started too late and ended too soon. Mr. Underwood stood near a group of others in a similar predicament, with a look of goggling outrage on his red and soot-stained face. Nathaniel said. Go and help him, John. Go on. I'm fine. Really, I am. I just need to sit down a little. Nathaniel approached his master with some caution. He would not have put it past Underwood to blame him somehow for the disaster. His master did not seem to register his presence. A bright light of fury shone beneath his blackened eyebrows. With a magisterial effort, he drew the tattered remains, he drew the tattered remnants of his jacket together and joined them at one remaining button and joined them at the one remaining button. He flattened down his tie, wincing a little at the heat. Then he strode ever toward then he strode over toward the nearest straggling group of guests. Unsure what to do. Nathaniel trailed along behind. Underwood spoke abruptly. A woman whose evening gown hung like damp tissue from her shoulders shook her head. It happened so... it happened too fast. Several of the others nodded. Through a portal, perhaps, a renegade magician. A white-haired man with a whining voice cut in. They say someone entered by the terrace. Surely not. What about security? It's resistance, do you think they? Lovelace, Skylar, and Pym have sent tracker demons down river. The villain must have jumped into the Thames and been swept away. 
Underwood turned to Nathaniel at last. What? What did you say? I, I saw him, sir. The boy on the terrace. By heaven, if you're lying! Uh, no, sir. It was just before he threw it, sir. He had a blue orb in his hand. He ran in through the doors and chucked it, sir. He was dark-haired. A boy a little older than me, sir. Thin, with dark clothes on. He had a coat, I think. I didn't see what happened to him after he threw it. It was an elemental sphere. I'm sure, sir, a small one, so he didn't need to be a magician to break it. Nathaniel paused for breath, suddenly conscious that in his enthusiasm he had revealed a far greater knowledge of magic than was appropriate in an apprentice who had yet to summon his first molar. But neither Underwood nor any of the other magicians seemed to notice this. They took a moment to absorb his words, then turned away from him and began chattering away at breakneck speed, each talking over the others in their eagerness to proclaim their theories. It has to be the resistance, but are they magicians or not? I've always said. Underwood, internal affairs is your department. Have any elemental spheres been registered stolen? If so, what the hell's been done about it? I, I, I can't say. Confidential information. Don't mutter into what's left of your head, man. We've a right to know. Ladies, gentlemen. The voice was soft, but its effect was immediate. The clamor ceased. All heads turned. Simon Lovelace had appeared on the fringes of the group. His hair was back in place. Despite his broken glasses and bruised forehead, he was as elegant as ever. Nathaniel's mouth went dry. Lovelace looked around the group with his quick, dark eyes. Don't bully poor Arthur, please, he said. For an instant, the smile flicked across the face. He isn't responsible for this outrage. Poor fellow. The assailant appears to have entered from the river. A black-bearded man indicated Nathaniel. That's what the boy said. The dark eyes fixed on Nathaniel and widened slightly with recognition. Young, Young under... Young Underwood, you saw him, did you? Nathaniel nodded numbly, dumbly. So, so, sharp as ever, I see. Does he have a name yet, Underwood? Uh, yes. John Mandrake. I filed it officially. Well, John. The dark eyes fastened upon him. You're to be congratulated. No one else I've spoken to so far has gotten much of a look at him. The police may want a statement from you in due course. Nathaniel prized his tongue free. Yes, sir. Lovelace turned back to the others. The assailant left a boat below the terrace, then climbed up the river wall, cut the throat of a guard, there's no body but a fair bit of blood, so presumably he lowered the corpse into the times. He, too, seemed to have jumped into the river after the attack and allowed himself to be swept away. He may have drowned. 
The black-bearded man tutted. Lady Punnett, that's your go. Oh, it's I unheard thought, of. I thought the black-bearded was... man was Hold you, on. Blaze. Hold on. Oh, my bad. Uh, I got confused. Cause, never mind. I, I misread. It's unheard of. What was Duvall thinking? The police should have prevented this. Lovelace held up a hand. I quite agree. However, two officers are speedily on the trail. They may find something, though the river water won't help the scent. I've sent Jin along the banks, too. I'm afraid I can't tell you anything more at this point. We must all be grateful that the Prime Minister is safe and that no one important was killed. Might I humbly suggest that you all head home to recuperate and perhaps treat yourself to a change of clothes. More information will no doubt come your way at a much later date. Now, if you'll forgive me... With a smile, he detached himself and walked away to another knot of guests. The group looked after him, open-mouthed. Of all the arrogance... The black-bearded magician stopped himself with a snort. You wouldn't think he was the only deputy minister for trade. He's going to find an afraid waiting for him one of these days. Well, I'm not hanging around even if you lot are. He stomped away. One by one, the others followed suit. Mr. Underwood silently collected his wife, who was busily comparing bruises with a couple from the foreign office, and with Nathaniel trotting along behind, left the breathless confusion of Westminster Hall. All I can hope, his master said, is that this will encourage them to give me more funds. If they don't, what can they expect? With a measly department of six magicians, I'm not a miracle worker! For the first half of the journey, the car had been heavy with silence and the smell of singed beard. As they left central London, however, Underwood suddenly became talkative. Something seemed to be preying on his mind. It's not your fault, dear, Mrs. Underwood said soothingly. No, but they'll blame me. You heard them in there. Uh, you heard them in there, boy, accusing me because of all the thefts. Nathaniel ventured a rare question. What thefts, sir? Underwood slapped the steering wheel with frustration. The ones carried out by the so-called resistance, of course. Magical objects thieved from careless magicians all over London. Objects like the Elemental Sphere. A few of them were taken back in January from a warehouse, if I remember rightly. The last couple of years, crimes like this have become more and more common. And I'm meant to tackle it. With just six other magicians in, a, in internal affairs... Nathaniel was emboldened. He leaned forward on the back seat. Sorry, sir, but who are the resistance? Underwood turned a corner too fast, narrowly avoiding an old lady and startling her into the gutter by slamming his fist down on the horn. A bunch of traitors who don't like us being in control. He snarled. As if we hadn't given this country all its wealth and greatness. No one knows who they are, but they certainly aren't numerous. 
handful of commoners drumming up support in meeting houses, a few half-wit firebrands who resent magic and what it does for them. They're not magicians, then, sir? Of course not, you fool! That's the point! They're common as muck! They hate us, and everything magical, and want to bring the government down. As if that were possible. He accelerated through a red light, waving his arm impatiently at the pedestrians, diving back to the safety of the pavement. But why would they steal magical objects, sir? If they hate magical things, I mean. Who knows? Their thinking's all wrong-headed, of course. They're only commoners. Perhaps they hope it'll reduce our power, as if losing a few artifacts and uh, would make it a blind, uh, blind bit of difference. But some devices can be used by non-magicians, as you saw today. They may be stockpiling weapons for some future assault, perhaps at the behest of a foreign government. It's impossible to tell until, the, until we find them and snuff them out. But this was their first actual attack, sir? Uh, the first on this scale. There have been a few ridiculous incidents. Muller glasses tossed at official cars, that sort of thing. Magicians have been hurt. In one case, a driver crashed while he, while he was unconscious. His briefcase with several magical items was stolen from his car. It's highly embarrassing for him, the idiot. But now the resistance has gone too far. You say the assailant was young? Yes, sir. Interesting. Youths have been reported at the scene of other crimes, too. Still young or old, these thieves will rue the day that they're caught. After tonight, anyone in possession of a magician's stolen property will suffer the severest of penalties our government can devise. They won't die easily. You can be sure of that. Did you say something, boy? Nathaniel had uttered an involuntary noise, something between a choke and a squeak. A sudden vision of the very stolen amulet of Samarkand, which, even now, was hidden somewhere in Underwood's study, had passed before his eyes. He shook his head, dumbly. The car turned the final corner and hummed down the dark and silent road. Underwood swept into the parking space in front of the house. Mark my words, boy, he said. The government will have to, will have to act now. I shall request more personnel for my department first thing in the morning, then perhaps we'll start catching these thieves. And when we do, we'll tear them limb from limb. He got out of the car and slammed the door, leaving a fresh waft of burned hair behind him. Mrs. Underwood turned her head toward the back seat. Nathaniel was sitting bolt upright, neck rigid, looking into space. Hot chocolate before bed, dear, she said. And thus ends chapter 20 of the Amulet of Samarkand, and oh my god, Mrs. Underwood is a bean! <laughs> I love Mrs. Underwood, but Mrs. oh my Underwood, fucking god. Mr. Un Mrs. Underwood is a Hufflepuff can confirm. Yep, yes. yep, absolutely, 100%, but just the throwaway line at the end, just like nothing else matters. Would you like some hot chocolate before bed? Oh, fuck. Here's the thing, though, and this is slightly more, this is, this is like a, a slightly darker note. She might be in shock still. I mean, Maybe. you're not wrong, but the fact that her response... Before she says anything, as she's still processing all this, would you like some hot chocolate? What is it about? I, 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 what is it about magical worlds and hot and like chocolate? What because chocolate it? makes everything better. Fuck. I think it's because chocolate involves several ingredients that actually help with 
uh, mood enhancement. Because mm-hmm. when you eat chocolate, it activates the same chemical reaction in your brain as feeling loved. You know mm-hmm. what? You're not wrong, which explains why I'm fat. <laughs> I mean, isn't that partially why we're all a bit overweight? <laughs> I mean, you're not wrong. Ferret says, who wants some warm, sweet beverage? Yes. <laughs> Uh, so as we're talking about, uh, as we were going through those, um, uh, the, the description of this elemental sphere bursting and all of the elementals inside one of each, uh, one of the, one of uh, each four elements bursting forth, Ferret made a comment that said, uh, something along the lines of, this is what happens when you put a bunch of introverts together? <laughs> Jay's yes. redeemed a posture check. Awesome. This so, is what happens when you put a bunch of introverts together in a small space where they can't go decompress. Absolutely. Well, you force them at an extroverted party and there's only introverts and they have to do extroverted activities for years and years and years without the chance to go to a quiet space. That sounds like hell. That's how the spirits felt for years yeah. and years and years. So I only have one point for this chapter because I was enjoying that way too much. I actually forgot to take notes. <laughs> um, I I got pulled right. I, I got like right pulled into that chapter. Uh, so the only actual note that I have is Underwood after the attack. His appearance is that potential foreshadowing for later, and what it just is because they like they went through and they talked about everybody and how they looked. They went, uh, Jonathan Stroud went into detail about Underwood. He didn't even go into that much detail for Nathaniel or Mrs. Underwood, but specifically chose to go into that much detail for Underwood himself. Second to that would be Lovelace. Which marks them as, well, I mean, we know they're important to the story, but it, mm-hmm. it, it's also singling them out. Yep. I would like to make a point for that, actually. Mm-hmm. I think the reason... So we're seeing this all through Nathaniel's point of view right now. Yeah. Yep. When you're in shock, you don't notice your appearance. Like, we... I would like to note, Nathaniel was injured. Yeah. Speak he said you. he ignored the pain in his shoulder. Speak mm-hmm. for yourself. When I'm in shock, I start analyzing, actually, believe it or not. Hmm. Yes, but this is Nathaniel's fair. first trauma response. You know what? That's, well, not, that's fir- fair. not first first trauma response, but his first attack. That is absolutely yeah. fair. Uh, your first, yeah, your your first incident, you're not going to be, you're going to be basically off your game. Yeah, exactly. And this is his first attack. This is the first time he's seen magic this destructive. Yes. Yep. So he's running on autopilot. His first thought wasn't, I need to check for injuries. I need to make sure everything's moving okay. No, his first thought was, I have to find Mrs. Underwood. Yep. But on top of that. He also managed to hold on to a description of the assailant, which, kudos to him, not many people can do that in the midst of an emergency. Nope. I think that was also part of the trauma response, though, because it's it's similar to tunnel vision. Fair. Yep. Fair. He saw it happening in slow motion. That's how it was described in the previous chapter. And that is so absolutely I think, fair. And I think he was holding on to that because he didn't remember much of the blast. He remembered bits and pieces, similar to how people who are going through that will only remember, like, key, key points. Yeah. And then, I think the reason he didn't 
mention too much about Mrs. Underwood's appearance was he was just so thankful she was alive and she was okay. Yeah. She has been a constant in his life and in some cases the only good thing to happen to him. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, there's that. I think the reason he was more keen on Mr. Underwood's appearance is it's the first time he's seen him be that disheveled Mm -hmm. and the fact that he's expected to look up to him Mm -hmm. even though he doesn't want to but i think a small part of him still does because without him he wouldn't have access to all the knowledge he currently has can i help you so yeah there is (laughs) there there is something to be thankful for at least for mr underwood at that point i think um that the fact that he's given nathaniel access to all of this information all of this knowledge and you are absolutely right without that he wouldn't have half the information that he's got he wouldn't have been able to study like he has even though underwood may not approve and may not understand he has still been able to take advantage of that yeah but i do agree that it could be potentially foreshadowing for what's going to happen next Mm. to him Mm -hmm. Well, like, we don't really know what Mrs. Underwood looks like. No, we don't. We, Not fully. We have, like, a basic description. Mm-hmm. We can mm-hmm. hear your mouse clicking, by the way. Sorry. But, yeah, we don't know, like, we don't know, is she tall? Is she short? We just so, get this feeling of a warm, safe person. So when I picture Mrs. Underwood, um, the image that comes to mind is the same image that comes to mind when I picture, actually, believe it or not, Mrs. Claus. This short. Oh my God, me too. This short little plump Mrs. woman Claus. that has an overly motherly or grandmotherly um, aura around her. That's always worried about whether or not whether or not somebody's been fed, whether or not somebody's been you know, looked after, whether or not somebody's comfortable. That's the image that comes to mind when I think of Mrs. Underwood. Mm-hmm. Just the slightly, slightly portly woman. Yes. Who has her hair up. Yes. All the time, has these little glasses. And we can't for- Always wearing an apron. And we can't forget the gray hair. Mm-hmm. Always the gray hair. So I don't know if that's just us or if anybody in the else in the audience sees that as well when we talk about Mrs. Underwood or when we mention Mrs. Underwood, but like, tell me that's not because we have very little for a uh, description of her. Tell me that's not her. Right. With Mr. Underwood, um, this might be a reference. Only people who watch like our vampire, the masquerade stream would understand. I kind of see that, uh, the the dick that we hated voicing. What's his face? The one that was the leader of the Anarchs. Yeah, the uh, the real racist one. Yep, yeah, yep. Yeah, yeah. the... I kind of see him in appearance with the mutton chops. The one yeah. who shall remain nameless. Yeah, yeah. but shorter. Can't remember his name. Ferret says, shorter and more portly. Ferret says. Yeah. In one hand, we have a picture of Mrs. Underwood. In the other hand, we have a picture of Mrs. Weasley. Now, I need you to find the difference between these two pictures. <laughs> um, no, there one is no has difference. more gray hair. Are you thinking Mrs. Weasley from the books or the movies? Books, or we're talking strictly books here. 
We didn't really get a decent description of Mrs. Weasley in the books. I'm going to go take a look here. Give me one second. Yeah, well, we've only read the first book of the Harry Potter series before we had to, like, move away from that. Yeah. Because yeah. that was the first book we read, and now we're on this one. Yeah. Uh, let me see. Mrs. Weasley and Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Uh... I can't remember the, the actual description that we get. So, we'll go back. I said back. Nope, back. Nah. <sighs> How does that make you feel? Sit down for a moment. How does that make you feel? Um. One moment, please. Loading. Character description. I got the Harry Potter wiki here. Getting a lot of character description analysis. I don't actually see a physical description of her, per se. We may we may have had one, but I don't actually see one here. Hmm. That being said, you guys finish talking. I will be back in just a moment. Okay. Um, yes. Something something to note, too. Um, yeah. I don't know if this was just them hiding it. Yeah. But the fact that the three magicians who were, like, secretly talking and we know are not really for the Prime Minister mm. sent Ysrites or Jin down the river to search for the assailant... Yeah, so here's an interesting thought. What if, because with how Lovelace was acting and how he was presenting himself and the detail that Jonathan Stroud went into when describing him during this whole event, um, what is there to say that Lovelace and his cronies aren't part of the resistance? Well, there's a possibility for that. Yeah. Which is I mean, why I said either uh, either they did that so it makes them look less suspicious. Or they're not a part of the resistance and they did it because, oh shit, someone just killed a bunch of people. Although Lovelace did say no one of importance, which... Bleh. Fuck you, Lovelace. Fuck you, Lovelace. No one likes you. Nope. I mean, we don't know how bad he actually is. So far, he is at least not as bad as Underwood. Underwood is a fucking dick who needs to be fucking ground into a pulp. Mm-hmm. Again, nothing against the author. In fact, the author is fantastic for write for his writing skills. We're just saying he wrote a really good bad character. Yes. He wrote a he wrote a fantastic character for all readers to fucking hate. Mm-hmm. And yes, there is a lot of clicking because I am on Hero Forge right now working on updates for some of my minis. <laughs> Including my Professor Moonchild mini. <laughs> 
I really need to make a Thornwick mini. Mm-hmm. And a row mini. Yeah. See, I have um, a Professor Moonchild mini when she is 80% dragon. Ah. I don't have a Professor Moonchild mini as she is when I last posted a video of her. For oh. TikTok. I have to do that. Yeah, yeah. So more with uh, the last chapter. Uh, it is interesting how they stated like, oh, even commoners can use some of these items. I would still think that the people who are stealing the items have to know what they do. Because for all they know, they could have just stolen like a soap bomb or a bath bomb. Right. <laughs> and just be like, ooh, it makes your skin super luxurious and it gets rid of all your pimples. That would be mighty embarrassing if they threw that in, like, right? the conference instead of what they actually intended. So someone with, like, actual knowledge knowledge is helping them with this. In one second, I have... Tea goes right through me. One second, please. You're good. Okay. <laughs> um, I think... It would be absolutely hilarious if they took, like, a gothic bath bomb, like, one of those pitch black ones, and they had to throw that in, and just, like, covered yeah. everybody in nothing but... Well, what what's that What's that color of black? It's, like, the blackest color in the world. I had, oh, I, Vanta black. Yeah, so I saw somebody paint a car with that. The car looks like a two-dimensional object when you paint it. You cannot see the curves of the car from certain angles. And it looks like huh. literally just a painting or like something uh, like a void just, in reality. It, it absorbs ooh. that much light. Yeah, it, uh, it absorbs what near like either 90 or above 90 percent of all light. Yeah. Uh, so if they had thrown something like that in, that would have been hilarious, I think. Uh, Jay mm -hmm. says, or the lady from Sweeney Todd, uh, I get Johanna vibes and Toaster Bomb. I have no idea what the hell you guys were talking about, so that means absolutely nothing Oops. to me, but... Oh, so, uh, Johanna is a character from Sweeney Todd, and oh, is... Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, Johanna is the daughter of Sweeney Todd. Gotcha. Yeah. And part of the main premise of that whole production of that whole story yeah. was Sweeney Todd trying to get his daughter back from the judge that right. uh, outcast him. Sorry, it's been, and, it's been a while since I've uh, seen that. Yeah. The, because, yeah. Spoilers in case anybody here is either too young or just has lived under a rock and never seen Sweeney Todd Sweet. with Johnny Depp and Helena Bonham Carter. Uh, the judge, played by Alan Rickman, love that man uh <laughs> he the judge basically fell in love with sweeney todd's wife and was like you know what i'm just gonna screw over this dude's wife so that way i can get into his wife's dms and did so but that kind of backfired and the wife kind of went insane they already and by the time Sweeney Todd was off at sea and dealing with being banished for, what, 18 years of his life. Uh, the wife had their daughter. No, the daughter was already born at the time. Mm -hmm. So within the first couple years of the daughter's life, Judge screwed over Sweeney Todd, tried to get into the wife's DMs. That kind of backfired. Wife went crazy. And the judge basically took on the kid as his ward 
But as she grew up and got older, he started having the intention of marrying her. And then Sweeney Todd came back, found out his daughter was still around and was being held practically captive by the judge. So all that bullshit. Fair. (sighs) So is there anything else we want to talk about for this episode? As uh, Lady Punnett sits here and slurps from her drink. Um... I was telling Lady Punnett while you were away from keyboard, AFK, that there is a I had a theory that Lovelace and his cronies might slightly be part of it. However, the way that Jonathan Stroud wrote that whole bit out, especially when going into description of Lovelace during that whole um, incident, Mm -hmm. that's the word I was looking for before, uh, there's a possibility that he could be doing a little uh, false hook to make us think that Lovelace and his cronies are part of the resistance to where he could be alluding to an actual plot twist. You're thinking it's a setup. Mm-hmm. Okay. To make Cause... them look better. So my question yeah. to you is, is that your experience from reading the book previously or are you possibly laying that as a red herring? Uh... Yes to both, because again, it's been a really long time since I last read this book. Fair. The first time I read this book was in middle school, like sixth grade. Fair. Yeah. And the other part is uh, remembering tropes like this from the past, from past stories and books that I have read and watched and experienced. Yes, it is a possibility that Jonathan Stroud is utilizing that trope. However, this could also be, like you said, a red herring. And just doing what I said before, a false hook to get us to think, oh, they are part of the ba- the resistance. They are the quote unquote bad guys in the story, where in reality, they're something else entirely. Fair. Or the prime minister's the bad guy and they're trying mm-hmm. to get rid of him. Yep. Because there was also that mention that even before the like just before that whole incident took place like just before the thing was thrown uh the prime minister's defense perked up yep which could be that with the prime minister being as powerful a magician as he is his summons and his demon protection uh could have sensed it just before or could have been watching as nathaniel was but it could also mean that the prime minister is part of it and no one else noticed but maybe nathaniel that the trigger for protection came on just a moment too soon so you're telling me that in this room full of magicians these people who have had many worldly experiences they know the way of the world at this point they know how the world works you're telling me that we have this room full of magicians and not one of them had some sort of magical protection up to guard themselves at a high class at a high level at a high level meeting a government meeting like this you're telling me that men who control genie had nothing on watch and they cannot interrogate these genie uh, and from what i've seen do not treat them like people they treat them like tools and not people and since they had nobody on watch they can't interrogate them specifically from a security standpoint 
there is that very likely possibility there is also the very likely possibility that they did have all this up however someone on the inside let these folks in fair fair a mole on the inside would make sense so Mm -hmm. i don't know yeah because they were talking because some of the not some of the people on on underwood's level Mm -hmm. were actually talking about hey what the fuck we were supposed to have all these protections and whatnot Mm -hmm. they made mention of this they called out that bullshit i was like maybe maybe they came in through the thames maybe they came in it's like well yeah they could have come in through some sort of hole in the security or they were let in by someone fair Mm mm-hmm Anything else we want to talk about for this chapter? Nothing I can think of off the top of my head. Jay wants Boba. Yep. Dragon, anything else? No. Cool. So, uh, I'm thinking this is a good place to break this episode, uh, to uh, finish this episode off then. So, just give me one second. Yep. We'll do our closing. Uh, for those of you that are listening to the podcast, um, we'll see you next episode. Uh, for those of you that are watching on Twitch, bear with us. So, uh, for episode 36 and chapter 20 of the Amulet of Samarkand, thank you very much for joining us today. We hope mm-hmm. that you have enjoyed this uh, this chapter, and I can't wait to see what comes next. If you'd like to follow us on social media, you can do so at linktr.ee slash the... Sorry. linktr.ee slash idiotbooknook. Don't put the word the in there. You won't get anything. So it's Mm-mm. slash idiot book nook. Um, we will see you guys, what, next episode. So that'll be... Episode 30-something. 30 37 and chapter 21. But yeah. for the idiot book nook, I'm Blazewing. I am the Reading Dragon. I'm Lady Punnett. And we will see you next episode. <laughs>